Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's Accelerate Your Performance podcast. I'm your host, Janet Pilcher. Thanks for having a desire to be your best at work and help your organization achieve success. This podcast is all about actions we can take to improve workplace culture and achieve results, and they align to our nine principles for organizational excellence. I have the pleasure of having a distinguished guest on our show today, Tony Bright. I've admired Tony and his work throughout my lifetime. His contributions to the American Association of Educational Research early on and his significant contributions to improvement science today make him one of the greatest educational professionals of all time. I'm honored to have him as a guest on our show. Here's a little bit about Tony. He's the ninth president of the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching and Learning where he is leading work on transforming educational research and development, more closely joining researchers and practitioners to improve teaching and learning. Formerly, he held the Spencer Chair in Organizational Studies in the School of Education and the Graduate School of Business at the Stanford University from 2004 until assuming Carnegie's presidency in September 2008. He came to Stanford from the University of Chicago where he was the Marshall Field Professor of Urban Education in the Sociology Department, and where he helped found the Center for Urban School Improvement, which supports reform efforts in the Chicago public schools. He also created the Consortium on Chicago School Research, a federation of research groups that have produced a range of studies to advance and assess urban school reform. He's a member of the National Academy of Education and and was appointed by President Obama to the National Board of Education Sciences in 2010. In 2011, he was elected as a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He is one of America's most noted educational researchers. His 1993 book, Catholic Schools and the Common Good, is a classic in sociology of education. His deep interest and bringing scholarship to bear on improving schooling is reflected in his later volumes, Trust in Schools and Organizing Schools for Improvement, Lessons from Chicago. In his work, Learning to Improve, Bright argues improvement science combined with the power of networks offers the field a new approach to reach ever-increasing educational aspirations. Bright holds a B.S. from Boston College and an EDD from Harvard University. Tony has a new book coming out this summer. We'll hear more about that during the next two episodes. So I know that you're as excited as I am about hearing Tony's life experiences in his improvement work and his overarching experiences and premier work in our schools for the last decades. I welcome. Tony Bright to our show today. Thank you so much for giving us 30 minutes of your time. I know it's really valuable and just appreciate it. So Tony, you know, why did improvement become important to you and a, and a part of your life's work? Well, it, um, the roots of it were actually an accident. I, um, I moved to the University of Chicago in the middle 1980s and, and there I was as faculty member at, um, in this very prestigious research university. And we were surrounded by some of the poorest uh, neighborhoods and the weakest 
schools anywhere in the nation. Then U.S. Secretary Bill Bennett had come through and, and called Chicago the worst public school system in America. And, and sitting there, I had to believe that there was something in the kind of work we do, the conceptual frameworks, the methodological tools that should be of some value in trying to actually sustain improvements in what was and still is the third largest public school system in America. And how would you go about trying to do that work? And recognizing at the front end that this was a different kind of work, that you know, in academics, you're trained to test theories. You may be trained to evaluate programs. You may be trained to critique policies. But how do you take the knowledge and skills you have and actually direct this toward trying to make a difference in the kinds of learning opportunities that students have in the way schools and a big school system functions. That became the kind of big organizing problem that I began to engage in in the late 1980s. And interestingly, uh, going back and look at some of that work, it started with something called a proposal for a center for school improvement. So that word in place was there in 1988, <laughs> over 30 years ago. It took a long time to figure out exactly what it meant to do that kind of work, but it was, yeah. the, it was the driving problem. How do we actually improve individual classroom schools, systems of schools? That's, and it's a sense, become my life work over the last 30 plus years. Yeah, you know, it, Tony, now that you mentioned that, I think back over the beginning of um, of my work. So I was starting in the academy, uh, finishing my doctoral degree in the late 80s and then starting in, in the university in early 90s. And you're right, everything was about school. That's when school improvement, you know, became part of the work that we do. But I, you know, I, I don't think we really understood what that meant. Is that what you thought as well? Yeah, I, mean, I didn't, I can't say I understood immediately, but there was a big shift. And I think there's still, this is still a very big issue for our field. It's the difference that you put the problem of practice improvement at the center and you ask how you assemble people and you think about the activities that you might undertake in, in a kind of systematic way to really make progress on solving that problem. That's very different than putting your the new theory at the center of the work and figure out how to test it, or a program at the center of the work for which you're trying to uh, develop evaluation evidence. This is actually putting a problem of practice at the center of the work. And how are we actually going to get quality outcomes with regard to that problem to occur more reliably at scale? That is a big shift in orientation. Yes. It is. So when you think back over the last decades, you know, what influencers were your early champions and why? I had, I had the good fortune earlier in my career, going back to my graduate student days, of um, having one of my mentors be uh, David Cohen, who had written this uh, wonderful little book on usable knowledge uh, in, the, in the early 1970s. Uh, I'd been engaged in work around stakeholder evaluation, pluralist policy research. So this idea about how you look at problems through multiple perspectives rather than just the one you bring to it, which is where this work on um, work on user-centered design takes its root. I had colleagues who had shaped my thinking in uh, orientation these directions, but it became very much um, the early stages of this were very much 
an issue of, well, this seems like an important problem to work on. And how I learned my way into doing this work through actually working on problems. In that early work in Chicago, we were working in some of the most, working with principals, teachers, um, schooling, community leaders in some of the most disadvantaged neighborhoods in Chicago. Worked on startup of a new school. Worked on issues of, you know, if, if you were really going to prepare teachers to, to survive and prosper in some of these most troubled schools, which historically had incredibly high turnover rates uh, among new teachers, how would you actually change the way you prepare them and support them to succeed? Through a series of, of uh, I went in for a year and a half to work in the, in the central office on, on um, how to work on improvement on some key processes going on there as well. I, I, I learned my way into doing improvement work, but at that point in my career, it was, um, it was what I would call mainly tasked knowledge. I couldn't explicate, I couldn't really explicate why I was doing what I was doing, but sort of like given, given the problem, given what was presenting in front of me, this seemed like the right thing to do. It, it, it took me another 15 years to act, turn this into, into explicit text, so which, which became the, the, uh, the book on learning to improve. You know, I'm just curious, Tony, I'm sure, you know, I think back at that time, we were balancing, you know, just the traditional understanding of research and, you know, the the credibility attached to that, to the practitioner-focused research, right? And trying to balance those two things. And I mean, you're a, you're a, a very well-known researcher, one of the best um, in our field. You know, how were you balancing that at that time? Well, there, there was there was balancing on on two sides. There's, I, I, uh, there's the legitimacy of doing this kind of work inside the university, which I'll, I'll circle back to. But there was also the legitimacy out in school communities. I can remember where because now there is a, a growing interest in what are referred to as research practice partnerships, where researchers are actually engaged around practical problems of improvement. But there was no tradition of that. Back in right. no tradition of that back in the late 1980s, and I can remember trying to get this off the ground and having conversations with whether it be teacher meetings out in schools or in some cases funders who might fund some of this work. And sometimes they would ask directly, and other times you could. It was as if I could see their mind working, where they were basically struggling with the question, "Well, you're from where, and you want to do what?" <laughs> uh, this is just this just wasn't the kind of thing that faculty at the University of Chicago did. I had, I mean, so prior work I had done in, in statistical methods, prior work I had done on, on the social organization of schools had, you know, had real academic standing. So that, you know, that gave me credibility in the, in the um, university. And, and then as the work of improvement, as this work of improvement developed, although it had a very practical orientation, oftentimes when you approach these practical problems in a kind of disciplined sort of way, you learn more basic things. Uh, I mean, my example of that is that early on, this was the decentralization reform in Chicago, where there was a great deal of resources and authority devolved out to school communities. And uh, had the sense going in that you know, this is going to work some places and it's not going to work other places. And how do you understand where it's likely to work and where it's not likely to work? And uh, 
in the course of spending time out in schools, talking to principals, teachers, school community leaders, observing local school council meetings and so on, I really began to focus in on the relationships that seem to be emerging in some places and not emerging in other places. Yeah. And people talked about this, I, this concept that I trust so-and-so and, and they listened to me and it really got me focused on that, this issue of the quality of the relationships among adults. When you think about school improvement is that this is, this is sustain, this requires sustained cooperative work among adults. What was actually conditioning has to happen in some places and not others. And I was seeing it. And that really eventually led to the work on uh, trust in schools. And this real focus on relational trust is an essential resource for school improvement. Uh, I didn't go out there to study trust, but it was going out there, in some cases, watching what was unfolding in schools at the same time, actually trying to make the more constructive things, uh, facilitate some of these more constructive things to happen in other places, that it really focused my systematic attention on the quality of relationships and how you nurture those to actually sustain improvement. So yeah. um, you develop academic learnings along the way as well. Yes, and you've, you know, you've been, I mean, from that time, you know, to now, I mean, you've been a major influencer in educational research and in leadership. And, um, you know, I, I uh, appreciate that. Um, my, my uh, I think, you know, my training is in measurement and evaluation. You've been a major influencer on me. And so as we begin to think about your influence and looking at the future, you know, what remains fragile in our profession based on what you've learned over the years? Researchers to tend more to problems of practice, uh, which I think is incredibly important. I think there's also some opening uh, attention to evidence. The um, I think there's been big, uh, I think there have been huge changes in schools. When, again, I think back to when doing this kind of work, really paying attention to test score data or any kind of systematic evidence. Uh, there was, each uh, practice was very private. If you wanted to go visit a classroom, you had to call up, leave a note in teacher's mailbox. Could I, could I come next week? And and classroom doors were shut. So there's privacy about practice. So the, the, you know, the, the field is moving toward, a, toward, toward this being a more collective enterprise, uh, toward the use of evidence and informing enterprise. And so uh, I, I do see there's, there's movement toward connecting research and practice in more productive ways. But the connection is still, is still fragile, uh, I do think. The status of this work in, say, for example, colleges of education uh, still is somewhat tenuous. It's, uh, it's not easy for someone to get tenure doing this work. If you got tenure, like I had, you move in that direction. That's different than, than you're trying to build a career doing this. Because part of doing this work is you're investing a lot in building relationships and building infrastructure. Well, that, that doesn't necessarily turn into papers, at least right. quickly. <laughs> Uh, uh, and on the, on the practice side, there is this kind of, there's still this kind of orientation of it's grounded in the, in the, in the urgency of change, the, but that the willingness to, to be really disciplined, to learn in very systematic ways, how to get better, uh, that, um, we still have some work to do, 
uh, I, I think in that regard as well. And um, and I, it, it still feels a little bit like there's, there's still a pretty strong boundary between research and practice. Yep. And uh, I think what we need to see is a more merging of those roles and a recognition of the importance of merging those roles. And then the second big piece is that um, many of the problems that we seek to solve in education are they're large and they're complex and they've been sources of inequity have been enduring with us for very long periods of time yes. uh, these are not problems that an you know, individual teacher and individual school and if that matter even many individual districts are going to be able to solve on their own we need to build more robust infrastructures for these what we call like what we refer to as improvement networks but where you're actually bringing people together, working collectively on solving some of these larger, more complex problems. Because we have this norm, pretty much you see over and over in lots of places that everybody's got to figure it out on their own. And so long as that norm persists in the field, yeah, some people will figure it out on their own, but many others will not. And we have no way of learning from the people who have figured out yeah. uh, how to make things better to actually get this to occur at greater scale. So this is really an infrastructure for improvement problem that I think still that still needs to be developed going ahead. Join me next week for part two of my interview with Tony Bright. I know that what you learned from him will be as valuable as what I've learned from him through the decades. And so, so appreciative of having Tony on our show. As you leave today, Think about ways you can challenge your organizations to focus on improvement, to accelerate learning by doing. Identify a problem of practice and think about the people who need to be around the table to help solve the problem. Thank you for tuning in to Accelerate Your Performance. Please share the podcast and make sure you're subscribed. If you're looking for more resources related to today's episode, head over to studereducation.com slash podcast. I look forward to connecting with you next time as we continue to focus on the nine principles for organizational excellence so that we can be our best at work. Have a great week.